sermon passage this morning is from Hebrews 3, and we'll turn there in a moment. But before we go to Hebrews 3, I'm going to read briefly from Exodus chapter 40, as it will provide a little bit of context for what is happening in Hebrews 3. We've been going through our sermon series in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. We have seen that Jesus is better than angels. Those angels who revealed God to the patriarchs in Genesis. Those angels who were that first instrument of revelation to, uh, to God's people. Now in chapter 3, we're switching over to the second, Moses. So in Exodus 40, we're going to look at what Moses' work on earth was like. Exodus 40, 1 through 16. Here now, Lord, Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle on the tent of meeting. You shall put in, in it, the ark of the testimony, and partition off the ark with a veil. You shall bring in the table, and arrange the things that are to be set in order on it. You shall bring in the lampstand, and light its lamps. You shall also set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony. Put up the screen at the door of the tower. Then you shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen at the court gate. And you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. And you shall hallow it and all its utensils, and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar. The altar shall be most holy. You shall anoint the labor and its base and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron, and anoint him, and consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priest. You shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics. You shall anoint them, as you anointed their father, that they may minister to me as priests. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout all their generations. Thus, Moses did, according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did. Amen. If you are committed to reading through the Bible in a year, and start with Genesis every January, you get to Exodus. And the first 20 chapters make sense. They're exciting stories. They're the Ten Commandments. And then you turn the page to chapter 21, and your reading routine slows way down. As you suddenly go, what's all this about? Not only does God, in very exact and thorough detail, lay out how every single piece of the tabernacle and worship of Israel is to be constructed, we are then reported a second time the very exact and thorough detail with which Moses does it, culminating in this moment where God 
having already laid out, this is exactly how you build everything down to the last fork. And then we get told again, this is how Moses built everything, all the way down to the last fork. And then we get to chapter 40 and we're told, Moses then puts it all together. And it's way better than Ikea. God gives instructions that can be followed visually. Start in the middle. Put in the ark. And build around it, walking backward out of my presence, all the different pieces of the tabernacle. Then bring in the anointing oil, then bring in the priest. And we reach this refrain that is visited to us throughout Exodus. And Moses did all that God commanded. Moses was faithful over his house. Faithful to do whatever God commanded. And all that God commanded. With this in mind, turn over to Hebrews chapter 3. As I mentioned, our sermon series for Hebrews continues this morning with Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This sermon to the first century Hebrews, anonymous in order to emphasize the role of the Holy Spirit, is calling to their attention the superiority of Christ, that he might cut them off from the temptation to return to the old life of Judaism. He's already established in chapters 1 and 2 that Jesus is superior to the angels who visited the patriarchs. Now he will establish that Jesus is superior even to Moses himself. So with that in mind, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, here again the word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. Amen. And amen. As I've already mentioned twice in this worship this morning, this past weekend we lost three pastors, ministers of the gospel. Harry Reader is probably a name most of you are not terribly familiar with. Anybody bring up Harry Reader? He's a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama. He was a champion of the belief that small, struggling churches don't need to close. They can revitalize. If God can raise the dead, He can resurrect small, struggling churches. You've read a book about them. Tim Keller. Anybody heard that name? 
Many of you have heard of him. Many of you have heard from him. He was a champion of the belief that you could actually plant conservative, reformed, gospel-preaching churches in large, liberal, northeastern cities. Right? Gordon Kelly. Some of you know him. Very personally and very well. Reformed Presbyterian pastor who for much of the 20th century was a champion of the belief that you could hold fast to covenanter or reformed Presbyterian convictions and yet do it in a way that is charitable and gracious and loving. That you could do it in a way that makes people attracted and not alienated to what we believe. These are three men we've lost this last weekend whose life work seems surprisingly relevant to our congregation, doesn't it? A guy who champions the idea that small, struggling congregations don't need to throw in the towel. The gospel can raise the dead. A guy who championed the idea that small, conservative, reformed churches can grow in large, liberal northeastern cities. A guy who championed the idea that reformed Presbyterians can be attractive to evangelicals. So what do we do when their voices go silent? What do we do when the champion is gone? We turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And we find that Jesus handpicked the exact text we would need today, even though we didn't know that we would be eulogizing these three men. And we find that Jesus hands us the gospel truth. Jesus is the Savior. Not me. And not any preacher you've ever heard. Jesus is the Savior. Stir up joy by studying Him. By that, I don't mean to discourage you from studying good preachers. By all means, study them. But study them in order to find Jesus in them. My friends, Jesus is the Savior. Stir up joy by studying Him. With this in mind, let's look at the text. Notice in verse 1, we are given two names, two labels. The author, the Holy Spirit, says to his audience, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. These two monikers are given to the church that we might know who we are. We are the holy brethren. We are the family of God set apart from every other family in the earth. Not only are we set apart in the sense that we are no longer descended from this human relation, but rather are adopted by God into a divine family, we are also set apart in that we don't live for the same ends and purposes. We are a holy people, a peculiar people. We're weirdos because we love each other. That's our weirdness. Because we lay down our lives for each other as Jesus laid down his life for us. We are the holy brethren, the family that is set apart from every other family in order to fulfill the purpose of being the family of God. And secondly, we are partakers of the heavenly calling. 
the unifying feature of this family is not flesh and blood. Take a look around. It's not birth. It's not ethnicity. It's not nationality. It's not citizenship. No, the unifying factor of this holy brotherhood, of this divine family, is that we partake of a heavenly calling. There is a voice that has come out of heaven that has reached each and every one of us and has said, come together. There is a heavenly calling that has come to earth and has summoned us into a relationship with God, and thus a relationship with one another. But this heavenly calling is not only monodirectional coming out of heaven, it also goes the other way. It is a calling to us to go up into heaven. We are the holy brotherhood, the family that has been gone, brought together by God through his heavenly call. But what is more, we are the family who are destined to depart from this earth intact. To go into glory as the one family that survives death. We are the holy family of God who partake together of a heavenly calling, a divine summons. It's one of my favorite features of Jesus' raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus shows up at the grave, and there are several problems. One is everybody's weeping, and Jesus is not immune to that. He weeps too, very famously, chapter, chapter 11, verse 35. But Jesus also is warned. He's going to be dealing with decay. He's going to be dealing with a stink. And it's a funny warning because this is someone who has come to earth from heaven. He's been dealing with a stink for 33 years. This isn't new to him. He's been dealing with the depravity and the decay for 30-some years. And yet as he stands there, he then calls. And he issues a heavenly calling. He who came from heaven to earth stands at the gravestone and says, Lazarus, come forth. That's it. And the dead man comes. Because when heaven calls, the grave gives up the dead. This is who we are. Friends, this is who we are. The family who have a heavenly calling that death cannot silence, cannot stop, cannot cease. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Because this is who you are, because this is your real identity, because you shouldn't find your worth and your identity in your work, you shouldn't find your worth and your identity in your family. You shouldn't find your worth and your identity in this place on the earth. You should find it in Jesus and his call to you. You should then consider Christ. This is the second half of verse 1. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is urging the church of Jesus Christ to recognize that as the family of God who are being called throughout our life, out of sin, out of misery, into eternal glory, being called from heaven into heaven, 
We should spend our earthly life considering Christ. Our daily business, all our life long, is to see Jesus. It's to see Jesus in our jobs. It's to see Jesus in our families. It's to see Jesus on the street in our neighbors. It's to see Jesus at work in this world. And if we go looking for Jesus in our lives, if we go looking for Jesus in our world, what will we see? Well, the Holy Spirit tells us in verse 1. We'll see that he's an apostle, and we'll see that he's a high priest. Now, by apostle, this is simply the Greek word, the sent one. Jesus is the one who was sent from heaven to earth. And when we go about our lives, we will see Jesus is the one who shows up. Jesus is the one who is sent into our situation. Have you guys ever prayed really long, really hard for someone by name to come to faith in Christ? And then to be sitting there having a conversation with that person, and all of a sudden they say the equivalent of, tell me the gospel. And the hair stands up on the back of your neck as you go, whoa, Jesus just showed up. He's the sent one. He came into the world once for all in the incarnation. Through his spirit, he is still at work in this world. And he's still showing up. He is still visiting us and doing work in us and among us. Specifically the work of a high priest. We have seen just in chapter 2 that Jesus is the high priest of our confession. That is to say, he has sympathy for us in our weakness. We who are the family of God have a high priest who understands we don't live up to our Father's measure. We have a high priest who has compassion on us. Who knows what it's like to be tempted far longer than we've ever been tempted. We always give in. He never gave in. He resisted temptation to the point of shedding his own blood. He resisted temptation to the point of wearing a cross. We've not resisted temptation that long. And yet he has compassion on us. As a high priest, he is sympathetic with our struggle. As a high priest, he not only has sympathy for our struggle, he has the answer. He has the antidote. He has the sacrifice for sin. And he presents himself, even as Abraham had promised his son Isaac. He presents himself as a sacrifice for sin. He is both priest and sacrifice. So, beloved family of God... You who are being summoned out of this world into glory, spend your time in this world studying Jesus. Noticing how he comes into your life, how he comes into your world as an apostle of God. Noticing how he's at work in your life, having sympathy on you, weeping with you, praying for you, forgiving you. Atoning your sin. This is what we see played out in our lives. This is what we see in our story when we take the time to see Jesus in our world. To meditate on him. To consider him. Now the Holy Spirit doesn't simply want to give us 
what we might call an unfunded mandate. He wants to give us the tools by which to do this. Most of us don't see 2020 when it comes to seeing Jesus in this world. For the longest time, I wore big, thick glasses, and then I got contacts. So I could hide how insanely blind I am. And friends, most of us go through life insanely blind. Jesus is at work here, and Jesus is at work there, and Jesus is pouring out love and grace and salvation and calling people into heaven. And we are often very busy with very small things, not seeing Jesus. So how do we train our eyes? How do we train them to focus? The Holy Spirit gives us a few tools. First, in verse 2, see Jesus at work in the faithfulness of his servants. For he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was faithful in all his house. This is repeated then in verse 5. Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. Moses, as a faithful servant in the house of God, is a model for us by which to see the work of Jesus in this world. Jesus works in this world, his apostleship and his priesthood, through the faithful service of his servants. We can look upon Moses and we can see how he willingly gave up all the pleasures of the priest of the princeliness. I lost that word. Never mind. How he gave up all the glory of Egypt in order to become a Hebrew. And we can see in this how Jesus was faithful to give up all the glory of heaven to be a human on earth. We see how Moses was faithful to go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and after ten rounds to knock Egypt out in order to deliver his people out of bondage. And we see in this the faithfulness of Jesus who came to earth, bound a strong man, and went on pillaging all of his spoils and taking from Satan and the kingdom of darkness us. The treasures that Christ has stolen from the kingdom of darkness. We see in Moses standing at the Red Sea the parting of death that through the waters of baptism they might pass on to eternal life. And we see the faithfulness of Jesus. The faithfulness of Moses again and again, I can go on. Each little episode and vignette of Moses' life of faithfulness stands as a pillar and a marker of the superior and more saving faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we get to enjoy this experience in our lives too. I've already mentioned three men. Ministers of the gospel who, like Moses, were not perfect. Were not without sin but whose faithfulness points us to the greater faithfulness of Christ, who was perfect and without sin. Do you have beautiful believers in your life? Mentors, models, people who love Jesus and taught you to love Jesus. Give thanks to God for them. And see Jesus in them. Don't idolize them. Don't worship them. 
recognized that the excellence of the faith practiced by so many mature believers is but a shadow and a figure of the true Savior, Jesus. Friends, let's rejoice that there is faithfulness among us, and that faithfulness points us to Jesus. But then secondly, the Holy Spirit tells us that that faithfulness of Moses, which points us to the faithfulness of Jesus, is eclipsed by Jesus. Verse 3, For this one, that is Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, even as he has who had, even as he who built the house has more honor than the house. What Moses was building was not the ultimate edifice. Though he, in faithfulness, saved Israel. It wasn't about Israel. They were a type and a shadow of the true Israel. And though Moses walked through the Red Sea on dry land, it, it wasn't about getting out of Egypt. Is about being baptized into Christ. Even though Moses was faithful in all that he built, that tabernacle, we learn from Hebrews that it was a copy. It was an earthly shadow of the true heavenly tabernacle, the reality that is in Jesus. You see, Jesus is in fact the real builder of all things. Verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. The way we begin to train our eyes to see Jesus in our life is first we see him in the faithfulness of the believers around him, but secondly, we see it in the greater work of Jesus through those who are around us. We see that Jesus is really the one doing the work and doing the building. It is a marvel to me that as we grow as a congregation, as I grow as a minister, I increasingly find something alarming and yet not surprising. We are increasingly aware that growth has nothing to do with us. We can't make ourselves grow. I can't make flowers grow. I can't make kids grow. I can't make kids stop growing. Growth is a gift of God. Health is a gift of God. Every house was built by someone, but it was God who built everything. Behind the works that we do, and yes, we must work, is God at work in the world. We learn to see the faithfulness of people as a reflection of the faithfulness of Jesus. We learn to see the work that is done in this world as ultimately being about God's work. By Him, for Him, to Him. As it said in our other reading. That we might grasp together. Jesus is in this world and He's doing something. And it's way bigger than you and me. And it's way bigger than this congregation. That's why I was so excited to be able to pray for Burkana and San Antonio. And all those other amazing works going on around the world. Jesus' kingdom is a lot better than it. Bigger and better than Andrew Street. There's far more going on. And it's wonderful and exciting. He's at work in this world. But then thirdly, we see Jesus in this world by seeing His superiority in His work to our work. We see that the work that Jesus is doing in verse 3 and 4 
is the work of the new heavens and the new earth. You see, in verse 5, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. You see, Moses was at work for what was yet to come. Moses was faithful in a salvation that was not complete, that was not entire. There was something yet more to come. And so it is in this life that when you and I preach and love and share and do the work of the kingdom, we're doing something for what is yet to come. Something that lies in the future. Something that three men this last weekend finally saw, but we do not see. The reality of the glory and grace of God in the face of Christ. It is spoken of afterward, as we discussed this morning in Sabbath school. Do we understand the relationship between what Jesus says about us now and what Jesus says about us then? As He will bring to fulfillment what He has said. Or do we understand that He's already said it and He's exposed it to us now? Do we recognize that His promises are yea and amen? And what we are doing in this life is something we can speak of afterward. Something we'll see as it really is and understand it as it ought to be. Jesus has a better work than anything you ever imagined. How many of you are old enough to go through some awful experiences? Look back and go, that was way better than I ever would have done by myself. How many of you have seen the good ending to the bad story? How many of you have seen everything sad become untrue? Is this not what Jesus is doing in the world? He has a superior work. We see him in the faithfulness of others. We see him in the work of others. But far more, we see him in the great work that he is doing in this world. And then lastly, fourthly, we see him in his superior person. Moses, in verse 5, is faithful in all his house as a servant. But in verse 6, Christ is faithful over his house as a son. Moses is faithful in his house. He had a time and he had a place. He had a people and a geography and he was bound to that moment. And he served well in that hour. And he served well in that place. But it was limited. Because he was limited. Not so Christ. In verse 6, he is over the whole house. And from beginning to end, he is bringing all of history to bear to his purposes. He is the son for whom this world was made. He is the son for whom you were made. He is the son for whom this church was planted in 1895. He is the one for whom you were brought here. He is the one who has put you together in this congregation. The son over the house. It's about him and what he's doing in the world and who he is. This comparison between Moses and Christ that, that Moses is a servant and Christ is a son is the same comparison we saw in chapters 1 and 2 with the angels. The angels are ministers, servants, messengers. They come into the world from heaven to do the will of God. But Jesus is a son. 
He comes into the world and he is God. And so too, Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is a son over the house. He is God in the flesh. He is God-man. And this makes him greater than all those we see around us. So how do we learn to see Jesus in our lives and in our world? We learn to recognize that all heroes fall. All heroes fail. All pastors fall. All pastors fail. We are in the house. We are but servants. Christ is the Son over the house. I don't agree with everything those three men preached, taught, did. And you know what? They preached Jesus. That's enough. Because it's his house, not theirs. He is his son over the house. They were servants in the house. And then these three words. I, I hope that we have built up in our hearts and in our minds this expansive and glorious vision of Jesus at work in the world. How we train our eyes to see Him. How we see Him moving in the world. But, but see then what the effect is. Whose house we are. This brings us back to verse 1. Holy brethren, the family of God. This word house doesn't mean structure simply. This is a nice structure, guys. But they can burn it to the ground and we can still worship. Because we're the house. Amen. We're the family of God. We're the holy brethren. We're the ones of a heavenly calling. I love that stained glass window. But I don't know if it's going to be in heaven or not. It's kind of unimportant. The question is, is who are you? I don't know if he's calling stained glass to heaven. I know that today, in this sermon, he's calling you to heaven. And saying, come. Come, be my family. Come, be my children. Come, be my house. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. There is something he wants us to do. He wants us to hold fast, to cling, to squeeze. Little by little, day by day, to let go of this life, to let go of this world, to let go of our ambitions and our loves and our self in order to free our hands for the grabbing of Christ, for the clinging to Christ, so that we can hold fast the confidence and the joy of Jesus, of knowing He's coming. He's not going to leave me here. He's coming. To know that there's a joy that comes when He comes. That he's the apostle who has been sent into the grave to fetch me when I die. That's what these three men found. When they exhaled and life left their body, you know what they found? An empty grave. Because heaven was calling. They found an empty grave because they were holding fast to the confidence and the joy of hope. I have a Jesus who shows up. I have a Jesus who will not leave me. 
I have Jesus who is over his house, and he will see his house safely. Jesus is the Savior. Study him. Make your life a study of him. Let's pray God. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for these beautiful words. We thank you, Father, for showing us Jesus and for teaching us how to see him in the world around us, to see what he's doing and how he is working. And Father, draw our eyes toward him every day. Draw our hearts toward him that that our hearts might enlarge and that we might run in your commands. That we might find that as our hands hold him fast, our feet are swift to obey. That we might find ourselves growing and thriving. That we might find he is our God and we are his people. We give you thanks for this beautiful gospel and ask that you would write it upon our hearts for the salvation of our souls and of this city. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.